father's lightsaber. What? Lightsabers, precious! Hello, and welcome to What's Lightsabers Precious? A Lord of the Rings and Star Wars encyclopodcast where we waste time on fictional wikis. I'm Ryan. And I'm Corinna Longworth. No, I'm not. I'm Joanna. Gotcha! Well, I'm actually Corinna Longworth. Oh. I'm not either. Ha ha! Oh, you really had me for a second there. I know. I had my Karina Longworth mask on. By the way, guys, we're like teasing a little bit, but... Um, you must remember this is an extremely good podcast yeah, that we like, really, really enjoy. If you like old movies, check it out. There's a recently a series on Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. Which we both loved. Yeah. A so lot. that's our plug, Karina Longworth. Hit us up. Uh, give us some free swag, please. Thank you, for, thank you for letting us advertise your show. Um, oh, yeah, she gave us permission. She did. We friend, had to ask if we could promote it. Is it okay? Is it okay if we recommend you to people? Friend Man. of the show, Karina Longworth. That's where I got my Karina Longworth mask. She gives those out to her. True friends. Yeah, you have to be like uh like a like a double platinum member, which I am. Oh, good. How yeah. much did that set you back? Uh, let's talk about that off air. All right, cool. So, do you have any Star Wars or Lord of the Rings news this week, Ryan? Uh, no, I don't. Well, I have some news. You do. I do. I'm going to Middle Earth. Well, yes, in we, a week. Uh, yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, you're going to be in New Zealand at this time next week. You will be on a airplane. I'll be on an airplane for approximately eternity or 21 hours, whichever. That's, I mean, same difference. Whichever one really. comes first. And I will be in New Zealand for two whole weeks with my best friend from high school and yeah. fellow Lord of the Rings aficionado. We're going to visit Hobbiton. We're going to visit Mount Doom. We're going to hike around Mount Doom. We're going to visit Edoras. It's going to be the culmination of a decade and a half of dreams. What an adventure that will be. Yeah, I'm really excited. And I will definitely give you the recap once I get back from my trip. Definitely. And while Joanna's gone, we talked about that last time, we're going to have some special thing put up, uh, which we will talk about later. We've already recorded it. It's it's big fun. It's so. in the can. We're it's professionals. The- we get things in the can. Yeah, we got out ahead of it. So you're going to get that next week. But in the meantime, yeah. you're going to get... The third and final part of our primer on elves. The elf trilogy comes to its dramatic conclusion in today's episode. Does. So, should I kick it off? Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I've been thinking about it all week. All right, here we go. Last time, we talked about the elves who went to Valinor, right? Yes. The Vanyar, the Noldor, and the Falmari. Mm-hmm. This time, we're going to talk about the elves who didn't go to Valinor. The Nandor and the Sindar. Those who stayed back. Those who stayed back. Those who could not be arsed. Mm-hmm. And actually, we're going to focus primarily on the Sindar, since the Nandor weren't as involved in the events that occurred during and just prior to the First Age. Okay. But, to spare a few words for the Nandor, since some of their descendants are quite important, you'll remember that they threw in the towel pretty early on the journey across Middle-earth. Yeah, they guess they stopped. They couldn't be bothered. Right, yeah. In fact, they didn't even make it past the Misty Mountains, which at that time were even further away from the coast than they would be during the events of The Hobbit. So they really, really just could not be arsed. So the mountains moved? The coastline moves. 
actually. A substantial portion of the western part of Middle Earth was just wiped off the face of the map. Oh, yikes. Yeah. And that's why when you look at maps of Middle Earth during the First Age, it looks so different from the map of Middle Earth that everybody's used to, that they show in the movies, Mm -hmm. that usually comes with copies of the book. That's why when I first read the Silmarillion, I had to read it with a map out at all times because I could not get my bearings whatsoever. Um, because all of these lands were completely different. All right, interesting. Yeah. Having collectively decided that Valinor probably wasn't that great anyway, the Nandor traveled down the river Anduin, mm-hmm. which is the same river the Fellowship of the Ring would later journey down in Galadriel's swan boats, mm-hmm. and they founded some new kingdoms, namely Lothlorien. Oh, I know that place. Yes, and Thoranduil's kingdom in Mirkwood. I know that place too. Yeah, those were both shown in the Peter Jackson movies. At that time, the Nandor were speaking an elvish language called Nandorin. BT dubs, if you're not interested in linguistic stuff, First of all, I'm not sure why you'd be interested in Lord of the Rings, since it's first and foremost a vehicle for Tolkien's made-up languages. I want to see them killing orcs. But, well then, you're going to be very disappointed if you ever finish reading the books, because the ratio of linguistic stuff to orc killing is wildly different from what you probably expect. I played the video games. You kill a lot of orcs in those games. There's no dictionaries in those games. You kill a lot of orcs, and also, I would like to say, if there is anyone out there who played the Two Towers game for the PlayStation 2 back in the day, please hit me up. I want to talk about the part where Lurts just jacks Frodo in the face. That is, like, the funniest thing I've ever seen in a video game. That's what's lightsabersprecious at gmail.com. Please email Joanna if you remember Frodo getting, what was it? Jacked in the face. Jacked in the face by By Lurtz. Thank you. Anywho, getting back to the topic at hand. Second of all, I'm really sorry if you're not interested in linguistics because I am interested in it and I think it's important to include it. Nerd! Shut up. Now, we don't actually have much information on Nandorin or what it sounded like and the in-universe explanation for that is that it was an oral language only. Never written down? Nope, the Nandor didn't have a system of writing. So Nandorin eventually went extinct, and by Legolas's time, the Nandor were speaking Cinderin instead. Okay. Cinderin, which was invented by... The Sindar! The, the, um, the I was about to say the Sindar, wow. then I, I second-guessed myself. I thought I was giving you a really softball question there. Let's try that again. Cinderin, which was invented by... Cindars. Good job. Now... I told you a couple episodes ago that the Sindar were the group of Teleri elves who actually made it to the coast of Middle-earth, but were too late to hitch a ride on almost magical floating island. However, I didn't tell you about a very important incident that occurred as the Sindar were nearing the coastline. Namely, their leader, Elway, if you Mm -hmm. remember, got his ass super lost in the forest. And specifically, he did. Just like the dad elf, not to ask for directions. Yeah, stubborn man. For real. And his brother Olway was like, just pull over and ask someone I saw a service station a mile back. And he's like, I don't need directions. We're fine. Stop nagging me. Specifically, he got lost in a forest called Nan Elmoff. Now, I want you to guess what he found there. And I'll give you three choices. Was it A, Ungoliant, B, Morgoth, or C, Gandalf? Ooh, all three of those are interesting possibilities. Which one do you think it was? It's a forest. Mm-hmm. And I think forests often have, in Lord of the Rings, giant spiders. Mm-hmm. So there I'm going to lean toward Ungoliant in this answer. Interesting. And I really like your rationale for it. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was a trick question. He actually found a hot babe. Joanna! 
I couldn't have guessed a hot babe. Gandalf is not a hot babe. Ungoliant is a spider queen. She could be a hot babe to someone, Morgoth. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Gandalf could appear as a hot babe if he wanted to. But he didn't. But he didn't, and I think we're all very thankful for that. Yeah. So the particular hot babe that Elway found was called Melian, and she was a Maya. So as we've discussed before, that's a second-tier spirit like Gandalf and Sauron. Okay. And she was so gorgeous that Elway basically decided to hell with Valinor and to hell with his responsibilities to his people. He was going to marry her and found his own kingdom. Wow, okay. And this kingdom was called Doriath, and Elway and Melian ruled it for many centuries. And Melian used her magic to encircle Doriath with the girdle of Melian. That's girdle as in a belt, not girdle as in shapewear. I was going to (laughs) say. Which made it so no one could find the kingdom unless Elway wanted them to. That's cool. Yeah. Well, sort of. Caused some trouble for some of his people, but we'll get to that in a second. By the way, if you look up Doriath, you may not see any mention of Elway. Instead, you'll see the king of Doriath was some dude named Fingal. Who's Thingol? Well, it's the same guy. So Elu Thingol is just the Cinderin version of Elway Singol. Oh, so different pronunciation depending on the language. Yeah, exactly. One's the Quenya version and one's the Cinderin version. And throughout most of the Silmarillion, they refer to him by the Cinderin version Thingol. So I'm going to refer to him that way from now on. So Elway is now Thingol. Thingol. So Thingol's people evidently were a lot more loyal than Thingol himself because they hung around looking for him for a long time. Good guys. And they looked hard. But Thingol kept himself hidden from them behind the girdle of Melian because there was no room for his bros in Hot Babe City, capital of the Republic of Sex. Aww. So at least that was initially he did that. He eventually let them in. While a large faction of Thingol's people were out searching, another faction made it to the sea and stumbled across another Maya. And this Maya was a dude called Ose. And he was a vassal of Olmo, and he controlled the coastal waters around Middle-earth. Okay. And I'm not sure what Osei's motivation was or what his plug was, but somehow he convinced this faction to remain in Middle-earth and settle down by the coast. Maybe he was lonely. Yeah. It's possible. Even Possibly. Maya could get lonely, right? Sure. So these elves became the people of Phalas, which was the westernmost part of Beleriand. That's what the western part of Middle-earth was called at the time. Beleriand. Beleriand. Okay. So at this point, I'd like to, again, recommend that any listeners out there find a map of Middle-earth during the First Age. Um, Trust me, I say this from personal experience. It really helps. And we'll provide a link to one in the description for this episode. Just click on that. If you Google map of Beleriand, one should come up as well. Mm -hmm. So Phallus was ruled by Círdan the Shipwright. And Círdan is one of the oldest elves, if not the very oldest elf, to appear in The Lord of the Rings. He's the one who makes the boat. Yeah, takes good. Him, takes him to Valinor. Hey, right? good remembering. You told me that. Yeah, so even after the end of First Age, when the First Age, when Valerian was wrecked and the coastline of Middle Earth moved hundreds of miles inland, Círdan stuck around. And in Frodo's time, he was living in the Grey Havens and tending the ships there. And as Ryan said, he's the one who built the ship that transported Frodo and Bilbo to Valinor at the end of Return of the King. Cool. Yeah. So how old was he then? Super thousands of years. Thousands of years. Got, we'll got see. Uh ooh, okay, so if he was born before the first age. Alright, so let's do some quick math here. Okay. The first age was roughly five thousand years long. 
The second age was roughly 3,500 years long. So 8,500 so far. And then the third age was roughly 3,000 years long. So that's 11,500 years. Plus, the elves were actually born before the first age. Right. So he could easily be like 12,000 plus years old. Wow. Yeah. He's super, super old. He's aged well, though, I would argue. There is one more group of Sindar we need to discuss, and that's the Sindar of Neverest. So the Sindar of Neverest considered Thingol to be their lord, but they didn't live in Doriath. Instead, they lived in Neverest, which was across the mountains and next to the sea. However, when the Noldor returned to Middle-earth after their unceremonious exile from Valinor, they decided to take control of Neverest like good little colonialists. Oh boy. And the Noldor who assumed rulership of Neverest was Turgon, who was Feanor's nephew. Okay. Feanor's nephew so and would Feanor have been... So Feanor is son of Finway. Mm-hmm. Feanor is the son of Finway. So it's Finway's grandson. Finway's grandson. Yes, Turgon. And Turgon also would have been Galadriel's cousin. Right. So this family tree gets a little bit complicated, but basically so he was Feanor's nephew. And after about a hundred years in Neverest... Turgon decided to look for greener pastures, and he led his people east to a mountain range called the Encircling Mountains. And within those mountains, he built Gondolin, which is also called the Hidden City. Okay. And Gondolin is super important in the history of Middle-earth, and I think I'll do an entire episode on it before too long. Mm -hmm. But for now, just know that both Bilbo's sword, Sting, and Gandalf's sword, Glamdring, were forged in Gondolin before the city fell. I feel like I've heard that name before, and I must mention it. Right, like this was crafted in Gondolin before the fall. Oh, okay, so that means there's going to be a fall of Gondolin at some point. There is, but I'll get to that in a later episode. Doriath is also important in the history of Middle-earth, but its downfall does not take an entire episode to explain. And that's because the fall of Doriath can be summarized with one word. Greed. Oh, no. Now, in previous episodes, I talked a little bit about why the dwarves had such animosity against the elves, right? Right. This story will help you understand a little of why the elves weren't so hot on the dwarves. So, do you remember Baron and Luthien? Yes. So, the interracial couple who stole a Silmarillion off Morgoth, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Luthien was Thingol's daughter, and Thingol was not very supportive of her relationship with a mortal. Racist. Yeah, a lot of racism, right? So to gain Luthien's hand in marriage, Baron brought the Silmaril to Thingol as a Luthien's bride price. Mm. He basically, like, tried to buy Luthien off Thingol using a Silmaril. Wow. It's a hell of a bride price. That's a lot of money, yeah. Yes. Um, so I know a few episodes ago I made it sound like Baron and Luthien like, immediately handed off the Silmaril to Arendil, which was an oversimplification and also a little bit of misremembering on my part. It's more complicated than that. So Thingol saw the Silmaril and he was like, damn! And he summoned dwarves from the Blue Mountains to set the Silmaril in a necklace so he could wear it around. His bling. His bling. And this necklace was called Nalglamir, or the Necklace of the Dwarves. Okay. However, while the dwarves were working with the Silmaril, they were also like, damn! Well, they love gems. Yes, they do. And they became so obsessed with the jewel that they murdered Thingol so they could keep it. Whoa! Yeah, a bit extreme. So this obviously really sucked for the Kingdom of Doriath. Yeah. Boy, it gets even worse. So for a short time, Thingol's grandson, Dior Elokil, assumed control of Doriath. It was around this time that Feanor's sons, if you remember, he originally had seven and they all sucked. Yeah, right. Got word that one of the Silmarils might be in Doriath. 
So they geared up and attacked Doriath, and by that I mean they just obliterated it. Oh no. Wiped it off the map. And if you recall, it had been prophesied that the Noldor would lead to the destruction of the Elvish kingdoms in Middle-earth. Here's Exhibit A. Yeah, that that seems pretty obvious to me. Yeah, so... These Noldors are terrible. Yeah, they're... (sighs) Like, they they, they, they lied about about their return to Middle-earth. They burned things for swan boats. They got all up in the Silmaril business. Yeah, they did. They redeemed themselves a little bit later, which was why... Some of them, like Galadriel, were allowed to return to Valinor. But in the First Age, they were just kind of a-holes. They just got, like, at least three strikes against them now. I feel like... They got, like, six or seven strikes against them at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately for Feanor and his crappy sons, though, they couldn't find the Silmaril in Doriath. And it had been carried away to a place called the Mouths of Sirion, which is where a lot of the refugees from Doriath and also from Gondolin were living. So Sirion refugees? Sirion refugees! How timely! It's topical. And, you know, Valinor would only let 10,000 of them in, so... Right. No, I'm just kidding, but... Anyway, so the sons of Feanor attacked the Mouths of Sirion, and one of the elvish refugees living there at that time was a woman called Elwing. And when the sons of Feanor attacked, she grabbed the Silmaril and threw herself into the sea. Whoa. It's like a little bit extreme, but hey, these guys are serious dicks. She didn't want them to get it. But fortunately for her, Almo then transformed her into a white bird. And that allowed her to fly to her husband, Arendil. Oh, okay. Who was out voyaging at the time. And so that's how Arendil got hold of the Silmaril. Gotcha. And now you can see why I simplified it a little bit before. There's a lot going on there, yeah. <laughs> yes. Anyway, that's it for our Elvish overview. Wow, that was, I mean, that's a dramatic story. A lot of ins and outs, a lot of big shakeups in Middle Earth. Yes, uh, do you have any questions about any of that? Sheesh. I mean, this is still the first age, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, do they get up to more mischief in the second age, elves? Mm, it's more men getting up to mischief, though. Oh, okay. I'm sure you're going to tell me about men, too, and their mischief. I am, I am. So in the weeks to come, I'm going to adopt a ground-level approach and examine the first age on more of a micro-level. And then I'll also set things up for the arrival of the younger children of Iluvatar. Well, aren't you just so scholarly about this? I am. I just pick articles randomly, and I, I follow the flow, man. So here's yeah. a question. Yes? Why do they have pointy ears? <laughs> I guess Iluvatar thought it was pretty. Oh, okay. Yeah, he just liked it. Does Iluvatar have pointy ears? Maybe. It never says that he created them in his image, though. Oh. So, like, for all we know, he could look like a giant centipede wearing tap shoes. We don't know. That's what he is now to me. It's now in my head. That's what he was to me even before. That's why I said that. I mean, yeah, it's the only thing you could, only natural conclusion you can come to. What? But pointy ears. So, elves have pointy ears. Elves have pointy ears. Men have round ears. Mm-hmm. Dwarves have round ears. Big think, round ears. Big ears. Yep, big round ears. Yep. Hobbits. Pointy ears. That's what I was just going to bring up. The bigger mystery to me is why hobbits evolved pointy ears after they split off from men. I'd like to hear about that at some point, but... So, from what I've been able to gather, and I don't think many people have the time or scholarly will to look into it that deeply, Mm -hmm. but there has been no reason given by Tolkien or by Christopher or by anybody else why hobbits would, again, evolve pointy ears after splitting off from men. Okay. My best guess is that when Tolkien created hobbits, he was just going by sort of traditional 
Northern European depictions of like fairy folk, elfin folk. I don't know that he was putting that much thought into their ear shape. I think he was. Have you asked Christopher? I've not asked Christopher personally. I don't have that kind of access. My daddy loved triangles. <laughs> he made us call it the daddy shape. <laughs> daddy shape. Circles are not good, he said. Only the daddy shape. <laughs> the strongest shape is a daddy shape. You always make Christopher Tolkien seem so weird and infantilized and senile. And by all accounts, he's actually quite sharp for 93. He's 93, though. He's going to start talking about daddy shapes at some point. Never once have I heard him refer to J.R.R. Tolkien as daddy, but now I kind of want to believe that that's what he calls him in private. I just am channeling his very essence into me. Yeah, I can see. Like the ghost of, like the spirit of Christopher Tolkien just inhabits your eyes. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Thanks for explaining. I'll let you know if I come across any more information about it, but don't hold your breath. Try searching for a daddy shape. (laughs) I'm scared at what would even come up if I search daddy shape. Cool. Thanks for, I mean, that was quite an overview. I feel like there's a lot of info there, but I feel like it's going to have echoes down the timeline of Middle-earth. I feel like it's going to come into play later, all these these happenings in the first age. Spoiler alert, it will. That was not even auto-tune. That was real. That was real. That was my real beautiful singing voice. So, are you ready for you to learn something? Yes. All right. So we're going from the most beautiful race in any fantasy or fictional property into the other most beautiful race in any sci-fi or fantasy property. Talking about Hoots! <laughs> yeah, they really are, you know, from a certain perspective. Surely they found each other beautiful, otherwise there never would have been little Huts. And we're going to talk about that. Oh um, my god. So Joanna, what, what do you know about Huts right off the bat? They're fat as hell. They are? Um, I don't know if that's natural or just because they are gluttonous. I don't know if like... It's a little bit of both. Okay. They have snake-like slit sort of noses. Mm-hmm. Big ol' eyes. Big ol' eyes. Big ol' like cat eyes. Big ol' cat eyes. Really wide mouths. Mm-hmm. They keep slaves. They eat people. They like salacious crumb. Oh, they love those old... Love <laughs> they love the comedy stylings of Kowakian, salacious crumb. Uh, lizard monkeys. Yeah. And that's pretty much all there is to know. I mean, most of your knowledge seems like it comes from Jabba. Yeah. Which is well, because you don't really see that many other huts. Right, you see a few in the prequels, and Jabba shows up as a CGI Aren't monster. there, like, a couple that show up at the pod race or something? Mm-hmm. Well, Jabba, the... it's Jabba's pod race. Right. One of the CGI huts there is Jabba. It looks way different than he does as a puppet. Well, he was younger. 30 years younger. You're gonna he find... was 30 years younger and more spelled. You're going to find out, you know, why that's stupid. But, okay. yeah, so you kind of described a lot of the stuff about huts right off the bat. The basic physical features. They're considered to be gastropods. Like slugs. Yeah, like slugs. Okay, cool. Because the way they the way they, the way they way they ambulate is kind of like a slug does, where they kind of have this big foot that they kind of scooch along with right. a bit at a time. Are they slimy underneath? Oh yes. Ooh. One thing you find about huts, the hut article on Wikipedia really drags huts a lot about like their appearance and how they look and smell and stuff. They so. can't help it; they were born that way. Yeah, yeah. So they they are your typical gangsters. They're all about manipulation and and crime and such. And we're going to talk about why that is. But let's talk about their biology before we start. So okay. first thing you mentioned is that they're they're fat. And that's true. Huts are known for being obese. In hut culture, fat was seen as a symbol of prestige and success. And so if you were a skinny hut, you were like a pariah. Really? Yeah. And there's actually a wasting disease that huts could get that made them skinny. But if you just didn't eat enough and you just were trying to be skinny, 
You were like a mutant to huts. So it was like beauty standards, basically. Yeah, yeah. Bigger the better for huts. Okay, so they did that in- this fully intentional that they would get big. Right. Does that mean Jabba would be considered like the hottest, sexiest? I can show you a very hot hut later that's even fatter than Jabba. Oh my god, I'm really excited. Ooh, yeah. boy, I better prepare myself. Yeah. I better get my fan out. I might, get, ooh, I might get the vapors. <laughs> they had really thick skin, known for being extremely resilient. They could stand corrosive chemicals. Whoa. They were immune to burns. Uh, and they were covered in an oil and mucus sweat. They made them near impossible to grasp. <laughs> so it's like it's like trying to fight a greased pig. It's a big greasy slug <laughs> pig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These big greasy guys. And so like if you try to grab a hut, <laughs> swoop out of your hands. I don't know why you would want to, to be honest. You couldn't even know. get your arms around it for starters. So you're kinda of getting the feeling that huts are like really hard to kill, right? Because they yeah. al- they also were uh, resistant to poisons and never fell ill, basically. Really? God, were they like immortal? Kind of. They they were also they're considered to be indigestible by other creatures. So you couldn't eat one. So there's a story about how a, a sarlacc pit, like the one that Jabba has, yeah. ate a hut one time and spit it out because it gave him indigestion. Was it still alive? Was yeah, 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 out? of course, of course. Are you serious? Is that why Jabba feels comfortable keeping one yeah. so near? Is that he knows it's not going to eat him because so he's gross? That trait saved huts from a lot of death. You know what? Like, honestly... This I know this is supposed to make huts seem like really gross, but it just makes them seem kind of cool. I know, I th- like they're so built for now, survival. People are down on huts. I think huts are one of my favorite Star Wars species because they are just like so built for one thing, and that's like staying alive and being jerks. Like so, evolution just sculpted them perfectly for they what are. they have to do. And it's quote here: their body odor was noted for being strong enough to upset a sensitive human stomach. Oh, so get too close to Jabba, hooey. He gonna stink. Is that because they didn't bathe, or it's just like they're natural? They're mucusy. What do you think those guys bathe? I mean, they might take dust baths. Dust baths like, gonna stick to around. those guys. I can see them rolling around in dust baths. He's gonna be like a big powdered donut when he's done. It's gonna look so silly. Cute. It's gonna stick to him. <laughs> they had really big eyes. They could see really well. They could actually see ultraviolet light Ooh. that other species couldn't see, and so like. A lot of the times they would um, use ultraviolet light inside of their pleasure palaces that only they could see, which gave people who like broke in or thieves kind of a false sense of stealth. So they thought like, oh, it's dark in here. Right, but the hut's seeing everything. It's actually not dark. You're out in the open, you stupid idiot. A lot of times huts would mark their money or their cards with special ultraviolet paint that only they could see so they could win bets and know whose money was whose and stuff like that. Oh my God, for real? Yeah, yeah. Did people know that? Because who would want to gamble with them if they knew that. The people around the galaxy all know huts as being manipulative and slimy and they'll try trickery on you no matter what. So if you get into a gamble with a hut, it's kind of your fault. Oh yeah, you'd have to be really freaking stupid. Scientists in the galaxy had a hard time classifying them because they have so many different traits of other species. So like, for example, they're like sea mammals because they can close their nostrils and stay submerged for hours at a time underwater. Oh my god. Yeah. And like worms, they were hermaphroditic and possessed both male and female sex organs. So does that mean, well, I guess to be honest, apart from having a rather deep voice, it's not really clear to me that Jabba is presenting as either or any gender, any specific gender. It's up to the individual hut what they want to present as okay I mean, they say that in the thing it's more it's like their deliberate decision however i need to put a little disclaimer here this was this is in the legend section in the canon section there was a note that made me very mad you know who pablo hidalgo is is he a painter 
No. He's a guy who works for Disney. He's in charge of the Lucasfilm Story Group. They're the ones who decide what's canon in the new Star Wars canon. Oh, wow. That's like a big responsibility. Yeah. He used to be a writer for West End Games who made the D6 Star Wars role-playing game. Yeah. But he's recently said that Huts actually do have separate sexes and are no longer hermaphroditic. Why did he decide that? Why do we need to decide that? I think it's a really stupid thing. I, in my opinion, Huts are going to be hermaphrodites forever. That's one of my favorite things about them. They're just, to make yeah. them not have hermaphroditic it kind of takes away a little bit of It takes that. away their survival ability because yeah. now it's like you can't just have like any two huts and have them be able to propagate the species. It has to be specifically like a male and a female. It just seems a little bit backwards, you know, in our modern era. Like, why not? Why not have huts be able to be hermaphrodites? Why not have huts be able to just be like whatever gender? Exactly. So Pablo Hidalgo, F you, dude. I think huts are hermaphrodites. Yeah. I agree with you. I yep. completely agree with you. Also, I think, I remember we were watching that one Star Wars cartoon where it had um, Zero the Hut. Yeah, yeah. So Zero the Hut, if you take away the hermaphrodite trait, he changes from being a hut who's very female presenting mm-hmm. and just becomes a really offensive gay stereotype. Right. He talks like Truman Capote. Yeah. So not not great. Not so great, Pablo. So we're going to say hermaphrodites. So they can swim like seals. They're hermaphrodites like worms. They also have the marsupial trait of burying their young in a pouch called a brood pouch. What? Are you serious? So do they have like nipples for dispensing milk? I always figured they would lay eggs. No, they have a brood pouch inside of them. And so baby huts, when they're born, they're less than 100 grams and they're blind, these little wormy boys. And they got to crawl their way to the brood pouch. And they live in there for 50 years. What? What? Yeah. Takes them 50 years to grow up. Well, huts have a really long life. After you're 925 years old, you're considered to be an old old hut. Jeez Louise. So when Jabba dies, he was in his 600s. So he was still relatively... He was middle-aged. He was in the prime of life, basically. Yeah, there's records of some huts. There's one called Zertros the Hut. He lived to be 1,700 years old. Holy cow! So elves they're not, but long lives they are. Yeah, I would say. So did Jabba have any children? He did. He had a son named Rata. If you remember the, the Clone Wars movie we watched, his little hutlet yeah. that ah- Ahsoka had in her backpack for most of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, he was a hutlet. He was only 10 years old. And so Jabba actually brought him out of Jabba's brood pouch early so he could experience the galaxy. Wow. Was that progressive yeah. Jabba? Yeah. Okay. It was pretty, it was kind of a rare thing. Usually you keep them in a brood pouch and, you know, for 50 years, they get about like 70 kilograms. But Rada was a little guy. And so they brought him out after 10 years in the pouch. I guess that's cool of you, Jabba. You're trying to like encourage his independence early. Yeah, he's trying to make him a worldly little hutlet. Yeah. Yeah. When they came out after 50 years, they had about the intelligence of a 10-year-old kid. Huts had a pretty long childhood. Yeah, it seems like it. They were 200 years old. They were considered to be adults. They weighed, at that point, around 500 kilos. 1,200 pounds or something Very like big, that? yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, with that kind of weight, they're not known for their mobility. It mentions in the article that things like carpets and upholstery served as obstacles to the layer of slime generated by their bodies when moving. <laughs> so if you want to if you run away from a hut, you just put down some throw carpet. some carpet. <laughs> Just put down like a nice Turkish rug and they're like, oh, dang it! I'll get you! <laughs> this, my slime's all up in this shag! <laughs> Alternatively, what if you also lay down some salt on the rug? Oh my god, that's like the worst thing a hook could go over. Salty carpet? <laughs> do they have an issue with salt like slugs do? Yeah, they're gastropods, I'd imagine so. Salty carpet. That'd be a cool band name too. It would be. So yeah, so most huts, slimy, thick skin, no hair. But there was a recessive trait where some huts could actually grow beards and hair, but they were considered to be mutants by other huts. Really? Yeah. They're very, very strict with their physical standards here. So more adding on to their survival skills. They could regenerate. 
Huh? Much like a much like a worm could. And so there is a story of a hut named Gargon the Hut. Yeah. He got half his head blown off by a thermal detonator, so he lost half his skull, like including like a big chunk of his brain. And after a century, he regenerated. What? But what was he doing there that century? Was he like in an intensive care unit? Like, Probably something undergoing... like that, yeah. So did his personality change? Cause... They didn't say. They said that's possible. I feel like you would have a drastic personality change if you lost part of your brain and then it regrew. And said that some huts even had a mutation where they had two brains just in case they lost one. <laughs> oh my god, they had a spare brain? Some of them, yeah. Where do they keep it? In their skull. Why only some of them? It's just a mutation. Huts are weird. They have all kinds of That's weird. so cool. I want that mutation. Yeah. Clothing's optional for huts, <laughs> as you know. Every day is clothing optional day. Right. Some of them would wear these creatures called Shirelian toops on their heads as hair pieces. <laughs> what? Toop is in toupee? Yeah. Yeah. Toop. T-O-O-P. Star Wars has got great names. Cool. It's alive. They don't kill it. It's a living thing on their head. Is it happy to probably, be on their head? I think it probably is. It just it doesn't really care. As far as their diet, like to eat gorgs with uh, slime pods and clatooine patty frogs. Wow. Yeah. So you remember in Return of the Jedi and, and Jabba has that fishbowl next to his throne? Yeah. Reaches his hand in and pulls out like a screaming thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's one of his uh, patty frogs. Wow. And they like to smoke hookah pipes to relax. Yeah, I can see that. He does that too, doesn't he? He does. I remember that. To wrap up the biology section, it says, that huts sometimes developed gallstones. <laughs> so they've got like all these survival skills. They're basically like immune to illness, like immune to getting killed. Right. But sometimes they get gallstones. Sometimes, you know. <laughs> Who put that in and why? Like, why on earth would you need to add that? I'll follow up on the source there. Right, I mean, I would guess that elves don't develop gallstones, right? No, I mean, they can definitely get sick and they can definitely get injured. Uh, well, granted, this is like in the movie. I think this is like completely theoretical on part of Peter Jackson, and his team. But you saw how Thranduil was using, quote unquote, his glamour to like cover over all these scars, burns he sustained. Yeah. And that's kind of how I would think of it. Yeah. If he was a hut, that wouldn't have happened to him in the first place. No, that's true. You've never seen an elf grow their brain back. I've never seen an elf need to grow their brain back. <laughs> well, you know. I mean, they're not invulnerable. Um, they're immortal. And it's Sounds right. like huts are kind of the opposite. They're not immortal, but they're practically invulnerable. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So let's go into their culture. So the first thing you got to understand about huts is that their thinking is completely different than human thinking. The way they think, they always feel subliminally like they're being threatened. That's kind of why they are the way they are. They're very paranoid. They always want to have the upper hand. They want to be on top of the situation. It sounds like they just have anxiety. Yeah. Because I, too, constantly feel like I'm being subliminally threatened. And so that led them to be uh, selfish, manipulative, intelligent, ruthless, and very greedy. Oh, they should just take some Zoloft. They need a lot for a big slug like that. Well, yeah, that's true. Maybe it's too expensive. It's noted that in Hatice, their language, they didn't actually have a word that translated to thank you. <laughs> and so the closest thing they would say translated out as, your services will be rewarded. <laughs> I really love that. That yeah. makes me really happy. So you couldn't just thank someone. You had to, like, promise them recompense. Exactly. That's how huts think. Awesome. I love that. Another another uh, drag on huts. Their appetite for power was insatiable as their appetite for food. Well, what? They all of them? Again, they're anxious with an eating disorder. You're going to get down on them about this? Come on. They're just super mentally ill. They become megalomaniacs, and they always find themselves in the center of, like, businesses or crime enterprises. they got to be the head honcho, wherever they are. Right? Um... Huts did not try to justify their criminal actions, as doing so is a sign of hypocrisy, which is not part of their way. In fairness, like, I can respect that. Yeah, so everything they did was part of their laws and customs, and they didn't pretend that they were bastions of morality. Right. They're just like, yeah, I'm an a-hole. Like, I did it because I'm an a-hole. What do you you want? Yeah, so, like, things that most 
civilizations thought of as criminal actions. Huts didn't think so. They were just normal to them. And the word criminal yeah. didn't translate in Huttese very well because it basically described every hut. Was there ever any hut that like broke the mold and he his like small heart grew three sizes and he's like, I this is wrong. Like, I want to be good. Yeah, they probably like threw him in a Sarlacc pit. But then the Sarlacc would just spit him back and out. And they're like, oh, so darn it. Oh, crap. <laughs> Yeah, there's no really way to good way to kill a hut. I don't know why we thought that would work. Yeah. Dang it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's some good huts out there, but you don't hear about them. Maybe if a hut was like adopted by another race yeah. of like aliens at an early age, and then it was raised in a different culture, would it possibly be good? Possibly. I mean, there may be nature over nurture here. Yeah. Criminals liked huts because they didn't see their crimes as crimes. So they could just chill. They come up and they'd be like, "Yeah, I kind of killed a man." The huts would be like, oh, "So what? I don't care. So what?" And they're like, "Oh my god, I, I feel I, so I, accepted." That's I, why I, I killed ten guys. Yesterday. That's feel. all any murderer wants. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a place to belong. Yeah. Right. They had a twisted sense of humor. Twisted. To... Yeah. Welcome to my twisted mind. So yeah, all that stuff that that salacious crumb laughs at. Yeah. He's really that twisted humor. Oh my god. You know, like Jabba throwing people to the rancor and watching them get eaten. Twisted. Twisted. Jabba's like, I laugh when people fall down the stairs. Normal people make good pets. Yeah. I'm so twisted. Yeah, speaking of pets, they did like slaves, but they didn't think of them as slaves. They thought of them as indentured servants. A lot of them would have very labyrinthine contracts attached to their servitude. Right. That were... Almost impossible to break out of. Okay, so it was only nominally indentured servitude. It was actually like, you're here forever. Right. They never wanted to do any work themselves. So they always had people either hired or indentured to do it for them. It's kind of interesting because it talks about how, you know, like how Jabba has some slave girls. He does. Dancing girls. He does. Is he actually attracted to them? Well, that's what it talks about. Because it says that they think that one of the reasons they took humanoid species as slaves in order to make a statement to outsiders. So that, like, I I own everything. I even own your people. Oh, but it wasn't actually, like, sex thing. Well, some of them it says were. So it says several huts were known to find female humanoids attractive, sometimes in a sexual manner, in something of an art appreciation or status symbols, or for reasons completely beyond human understanding. I mean, I've been on Tumblr for a long time, and some people find, like, aliens and monsters extremely attractive. Does anybody find huts very attractive? I've never seen that specifically, but I've seen other things that are similar. I love that oily, sticky sweat you got all over your body. You know, if you can think... Think of it, there's somebody out there who wants to frick it. Well, Huts probably wouldn't frick back because to them... <laughs> just lie there. Family is important. <laughs> oh, yeah, because they have family values. Well, they have the... I was not expecting that. To Huts, blood is thicker than slime, it says. Oh, that's cute. It's a great phrase, yeah. They have these things called kajadiks, which are crime families before other species, before uh, other Huts. You go with your kajadik. You get a real mafia feeling from the huts, and I feel like that's in keeping with it. I think it's definitely like a godfather type thing. Yeah. Right. Family first. All about family. Hey. That was good. Thanks. You're like the next Marlon Brando. Thank you very much. Now we're going to talk about the history of huts. It's not very long. I was telling you about this earlier. The, the history sections of every Wikipedia article get so bogged down because there's stories that go back hundreds of thousands of years before the movies, and then ones that go thousands of years after the movies. And it's hard to boil it all down. But I just want to tell you the basic kind of the through line of the huts, how they got to where they are, why they are. Okay. Started cool. from the bottom. Now they're here. I'm going to tell you why. Okay. Got a whole team here. Huts originally started on a planet called Varl, 
which was a lush rainforest planet. Things are pretty good there. That's where they evolved. They lived in the jungles. It's kind of why they're the way they are, like like the humidity and stuff like that. Yeah. But then around 15,000 years before the Battle of Yavin, the Hutt started a civil war. And in the process, accidentally destroyed Varl and all of its ecosystems. Oh my god! What were they using to fight this civil war that it destroyed the whole planet? Well, the rumors are that a, a huge asteroid made from a destroyed moon rained down onto Varl. That sounds like a natural thing. That doesn't sound like something they caused. They blew up the planet that made the asteroid. Oh, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, then, yeah, it is. Yeah, and so the survival after the destruction of Varl led the Huts to believe that they were greater than the gods they have once worshipped. Whoa. Because it, like, they thought they survived the death of their gods, and so they thought themselves as replacements for their deities and that everyone else was expendable. Man is God. Pretty much. Is what they like, were thinking. Gods didn't save us, Huts saved us. So they were like humanists. Kind Hutt- of. Huttonists. In, in a very warped sort of way. Yeah, they were Huttonists. Okay. Yeah. And so they traveled through the stars, finding a new home, and they found a planet called Evokar, which is another jungle world. And it was home to these meek species called the Evoki. And primitive people, yeah. not a lot of tech. The Huts obviously took advantage of this, because little by little, they bought up Evokar land by selling the Evokai Hut tech. And before long, the Huts basically owned the entire planet. And of course, the Evokai were like, what? What happened? And they're like, Huts are like, guess what? We own you now. What happened? What happened? And so they became the slaves of the Huts and helped them build their new empire. Evokar was renamed to be called Nalhutta, which means glorious jewel in Huttis. And so right away, they used the Evokai's labor to build their new planet. This beautiful rainforest, pave over it. They wanted to build pleasure palaces, replace it with these gross, smelly swamps to build the humidity up on the planet. Oh my gosh. Well, if they wanted humidity, then why would they get rid of the rainforest? Because the rainforest is super humid. They wanted stagnant swamps with all those smells they liked oh my god and so basically it became this this gross planet uh, over a matter of centuries well gross to others but presumably wonderful to the huts right it was streaked by greasy rains greasy rains yeah it made a fetid sauna in which huts were most comfortable and from there they started building their empire into hut space and so there's a part of the galaxy called hut space where the empire doesn't have a ton of jurisdiction they kind of are hands off with the huts and in that area that's where they run their drug trades and their slave trades and all that the moon of Evokar became Narshada, which is the smuggler moon. It's a kind of like Coruscant where the whole planet's one big city. Yeah. It's kind of like crappy Coruscant where like it's just like, a, like one giant slum covering an entire planet. Ooh. It's like, looks like Blade Runner when they draw it all the time. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like this, it's this sort nasty, of like, rainy um, city. Oh, I don't know. Like capitalist society has reached its logical endpoint, and everything has fallen into decay. Exactly. And, that's yeah. that's the smuggler moon. There's no laws there. You can get away with whatever you want. And so it's a very popular destination for criminals. And it's one of, my, one of my favorite Star Wars locations just because it's such like a crappy place to go. And, you like, said its name was? Narshada. 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 It's like El Shaddai. It is, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to point that out. They went outside of Hut space. So Jabba, for example, he's the leader of the Outer Rim yeah. group of huts. Okay. So Tatooine is not a hut planet, but when they arrived, it kind of became one. Yeah, hut, huts have a pretty long arm across the galaxy. Yeah, it sounds like it, but nobody can rein them in. There's nothing they can do. They're unkillable. And That's true. Very rich. They have deep, deep pockets, money that goes back thousands of years. They're old money. They're gangsters. They have so many people under their control. It seems like the only thing stopping them from, like, literally imposing a full totalitarian government on every single planet is that they're kind of lazy. Exactly. Yeah. They they like their space. They like to stay where they are. Lucky thing. Lucky they like thing to stay comfortable. And the Empire is very happy about that fact. So that's the history of Huts. I do have a little section here. I think we have time. Because I talked a little bit about their language. Huts have their own language called Hatis. Right. 
which is the second most spoken language in the galaxy, behind basic. Interesting! I didn't know that. Yeah, because the Huts, again, have a long arm of influence, and so it spread, you know, just as much as basic did. And some planets, that's all they speak. Now, has Hatis become codified, like Elvish, or even to the extent of, like, Klingon? I'm glad you asked that. I found a Hatis dictionary no online. Way! Yeah, it was, a lot of it's written by Ben Burt. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who did all the sound design for Star Wars. He invented the sound of a lightsaber, all of our Kitu's beeps. He actually wrote a book of, like a, like a, a phrase book of Hatis. Cool. Yeah. And so, do you want to learn some Hatis? Yeah, I do. Let's start with the first one. Something a Hut would probably call us Wormo. Wormo. That means a stupid person, an idiot, a pitiable worm. I like it. It's easy to remember. Wormo. Right. And so if you were to greet a hut, you'd want to say something like achuta. Achuta. That means hello. Achuta. Not to be confused with ichuta. Why do I know that phrase? Because in Empire Strikes Back, a very nasty droid says that to C-3PO. Yes! Yes! And C-3PO's like, how rude! Yes, it's a swear word. It basically is like the F-U of Hati. So there's achuta and ichuta. So be careful. It's very dangerous that those two sound the if same. If you're worried to say chuba. Which Chuba. Means, hey you. Hey you. Yep. So Chuba. Chuba. Chuba's cute. There's some phrase you hear a lot in Star Wars, like Bantapudu. Bantapudu. No, Bantapudu means. I know what a bantha is. Yeah, it's like a big space cow. Is Pudu poop? You'd think so. It's actually fodder. Oh. So it's basically calling you like bantha hay. Like you can eat eaten by a bantha. That's how weak you are. Wow. So uh, if you remember, that's what Sebulba calls Anakin in episode one. Like bantha poodoo. <laughs> in fairness, Anakin is bantha poodoo. He looks... He's nine, but he looks about five. And he has that, that <laughs> golden straw hair. He looks like bantha poodoo already. He does. He does. He also seems slightly impaired in some undefinable way. So that's like talk tough obviously yeah. there's a lot of the phrases are very rude and, and tough sounding so let's try this one dopamigusha pidunky dopamigusha pidunky that means do you feel lucky punk oh for real yeah are they like dirty hairy fans oh i bet they love okay. they love those hollow films <laughs> so cool shone mina wish asha bicho shone mina wish asha bicho i shall enjoy watching you die oh that's so cool Jabba says that to Luke when he falls in the rancor pit yeah dude I wish I'd known these phrases when I was getting bullied in middle school because I bet it would have stopped my bullies in their tracks absolutely I said oh joy watching you die in her teeth they would have been like oh my god we were mistaken she's actually quite cool I mean that would be very cool if he said Hatice to somebody they'd be like this girl's crazy I'm getting out of here I'm never gonna make fun of her again jeez she's allied with the Huts those terrible slugly criminals <laughs> yeah, she probably runs a cartel I can't deal with her she's crazy she's unkillable even the Sarlaccs won't eat her. She regenerates her own brain if it gets blown off. <laughs> I better be careful. They would have thought of. They would say that exactly. Yeah. Let's say you want to go on vacation mm-hmm. to a hut-owned planet or a planet where they only speak Huttese. Yeah. And they don't speak basic. They want to talk basic to you. What are you going to do? Gesture a lot, I guess. You could do that. Or you could read Ben Burt's phrase book because he has a whole section on tourism. What? That's so cute. So how about this one? Kavanopi de Bumpaula. Kavanopi de Bumpaula. How much is the room for the night? No way! You are yourself a hut, you would say. I want the hut size bed. Because <laughs> it's so large. Yeah. Do they have where is the toilet? Not on my list, unfortunately. That is like the first thing they, they should might, be in It any might have that on the I, I Look it up later, it's probably on there. Yeah. I would like room service. Ah. Oh, of course they would. They're not going to go get food for themselves. This is a good one for you. Yeah? Uh, as a hut. Joanna the hut. Yes. Chesco yo kimbalaluma. 
Chesco yo kimbalaluma. Do you offer vegetarian cuisine? Were, were there some vegetarian huts? Apparently. Oh my god, that's so cool. Why? I'm assuming it wasn't for ethical reasons. No, 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 no. There's another question you might want to ask before you eat. Dopa naraka raka? Dopa naraka raka? Does this cause brain damage? <laughs> Why do you care? You, just, you have a second one that you can use. Some of them, not all of them. Up. That's true. Or you can just regenerate it. And so you go up to your bed after eating a big meal of vegetarian hut cuisine and you bed down for the night. Leave this on your answering machine. Volhunka Bay, Chihuahua Wonky. Volhunka Bay, Chihuahua Wonky. It's my nap time. Leave your message. I'm, I'm actually going to change my, my voicemail greeting to that right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Cho, what was it? Volhunka Bay, Chihuahua Wonky. Vohunka Bay, Chihuahua Wonky. Because anytime people call me is essentially it's like your nap time. time. Yep. Yeah. So that's kind of a crash course in Hatis. Now you know what to do if you ever go to Hut Owned Planet. I love it so much. Yeah, I so think it's, it's great. Good episode, Joanna. Yeah, good episode, Ryan. Uh, like we said, next week Joanna will not be here. We'll have a fun thing set up. We'll next look- two weeks I won't next be here. Three next three weeks I won't be here. We have a three-part special coming up, coming your way. It's already in the can. Ryan's just editing it. You're either going to think it's really fun or really lame and not want to listen to it. But either way, we'll return to regular episodes uh, like a month from now. Like really. a month from now. In a month from now, yeah. So look forward to it. Yep, should be fun. Uh, Again, if you have any questions, comments... uh... Or if you have seen the part in the PlayStation 2 video game, The Two Towers, where Frodo gets jacked in the face by Lurtz. If you've seen Frodo get jacked in the face by Lurtz, please email us at whatslicebersprecious at gmail.com. You said it like it was like a mesothelioma commercial. If you or someone you know has been affected by mesothelioma, (laughs) you might be entitled to a cash settlement. (laughs) You might be entitled to a cash settlement if you've seen Frodo get jacked by Lurtz. So, yeah, please email us. And also, um, please check us out on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a Facebook page and a Twitter account, both of which are called What's Lightsabers Precious. Yep. We're on SoundCloud and iTunes. Uh, open up that podcast app on your phone and... Rate us. Leave a review. Even a short review yeah, would we, be super awesome. We have one review and we have five ratings. Hey! So, so if you're one of those five people, high five. High five, my wife. I don't know why I said it that way. I don't know why you did either. But thank you. Thank you for listening. Let's learn one more hut phrase before we go, Joanna. All right, I'm ready. Lay it on me. Me juice Me juice What that means? No. Goodbye. Oh, goodbye. Me juice Me juice